I'd like to start this morning in uh, Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16 is the account where Jesus is with his disciples and he asks them who people are saying that he is. And Peter, or the disciples respond, some say you're Elijah, some say you're Jeremiah or one of the other prophets. But in Matthew 16, verse 15, Jesus said unto them, but who do you say that I am? You know, that's the real issue. Who do you say that he is? And, and Peter answered and said, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said unto him, blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this unto you, but my Father which is in heaven. And I say also unto thee that thou art Peter, and upon this rock, the rock he's talking about is the knowledge of Jesus being the Messiah. And upon this rock, or this knowledge, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt loose on the earth shall be loosed in heaven. One of the greatest surprises of my Christian experience happened a couple of years ago. Um, I've been pastoring this church since we began in 1986, so we're in our 32nd year. And I pastored for 30 years before I knew this. I assumed that the message that the disciples preached when they were doing the works of Jesus and fulfilling his commands I assumed that they went everywhere into whatever city or whatever town they went into. They told about Jesus being the Messiah. I thought the message of who Jesus is, being the Son of God, I thought that was it. I come from a background of evangelical Baptist church, and everything was about salvation. Everything was about giving your heart to Jesus. And so I'm sure my background helped create or solidify that thought. But if the disciples didn't preach Jesus was the Christ, what did they preach? We know that, that even after Jesus' uh, resurrection, the disciples did not, still did not believe that Jesus would be raised from the dead and, and, and that things would work just exactly the way that he said. It tells us about how that when he first appeared to them, or one of the accounts that, it, that when he appeared to them, he, had, he upbraided them for their unbelief because he had taught them clearly. The Bible says specifically, he taught them clearly that he was going to Jerusalem, going to be crucified, and going to be raised again the third day. They didn't believe it. Now, I'm not throwing rocks. I'm sure that would be a, a difficult thing to accept. But nevertheless, Jesus expected them to believe what he said. Well, if these guys, after three years of being with Jesus. We don't know exactly when he sent the disciples out to start on their ministry and, uh, and preaching in towns and so forth. But most Bible scholars would agree, or surmise, I should say, that it, they had been with Jesus for about two of the three years before he ever sent them out on their own. That would make sense. They would certainly need to learn something about what things were and how things worked before they went out onto their own. But if these guys, after being with him for three years, didn't believe 
and have an understanding of the reason Jesus came. What do they have to say? You see where I'm getting at, don't you? So here, toward the end of Jesus' ministry, Jesus asked them, who do you say I am? And Peter comes up with the right answer. Jesus said that God gave him the answer. God revealed it to him. Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Well, notice what Jesus said. He said that upon this rock, this knowledge, that he is the Son of God. Of course, we know that includes the knowledge of everything that he did for us on the cross through his sacrifice. Through the knowledge of who we are in him and what he has done for us or on our behalf as our substitute. He said he would build his church and the gates of hell should not prevail against it. I like one translation that says the gates of hell will not be able to hold out against it. The picture that gives is a different picture than most people have for the church. Most people have the idea that the church is hanging on trying to survive the devil's onslaught. But Jesus painted a picture of the church being in motion and the devil trying to hold out against it. So Jesus said, upon this rock I'll build my church and the gates of hell should not prevail against it. And in the next verse he said, and I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven. The keys of the kingdom of heaven. Now folks, <clears throat> when he's talking about keys here and the word that he uses in the Greek language for keys, we think of car keys and house keys and stuff like that. They didn't have mechanical locks. So they didn't have keys for their house. That doesn't mean there, there weren't ways for them to secure or attempt to secure it uh, for safety purposes and so forth. But they didn't use mechanical locks and keys. So when he's talking about keys to the kingdom of heaven, or keys of the kingdom of heaven, he's talking about and using an example that they understood. Back then, a key was something somebody wore around their waist. I know you're picturing the big, long skeleton keys or something like that. I don't know what they look like. We don't have any record of, of uh, what their appearance was. But those keys were a sign to everybody else when they saw the person who wore it that they had completed some kind, of under, uh, some kind of learning, higher learning or some kind of education. Keys represented knowledge. And so when he says, I'll give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven, he's telling them, I will give you knowledge and understanding so that you can operate in the kingdom of God. Notice again, he said what those keys would do. I'll give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatsoever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatsoever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Now, I really, um, because of a lot of wrong teaching that's been in the body of Christ for a long time about binding and loosing and people having squirrely ideas and super spiritual thoughts and attitudes about some of those things, I prefer to use what the words mean rather than those words. To bind means to prohibit. To loose means to allow. So he's saying, based on the knowledge of who Jesus is and what he's done for us and who we are in him, what belongs to us through his sacrifice, he's saying, I'll give you knowledge to enable you to operate in the kingdom of heaven. Now what's that knowledge going to do? It's going to pr provide man a place of authority. A place of authority. That's what binding and loosing is, isn't it? It's determining or deciding how things will be for you. And notice that authority that he's talking about 
doesn't start in heaven. It's not in heaven. It's in earth. Whatsoever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatsoever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. The authority that comes to us through the knowledge of who Jesus is and what he's done is an earthly authority, not heavenly. It doesn't start in heaven. It doesn't say in whatever God wills for you will be done. It says it's here. Now notice the next verse. We stopped in verse 19. Let me read it again. And I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven. He's talking about knowledge and understanding. And whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Now he's telling them about the authority that we have based on that knowledge or understanding that he identifies as the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Notice verse 20. Then charged he his disciples that they should tell no man that he was Jesus the Christ. Compare that to the idea many of us have. I certainly had it. And much of the, I, I would assume the majority of the church has it. But compare verse 20 with what our idea is about what the disciples went around and preached. He's not saying, and he does not say in verse 20, now I want you to change your message. We've been telling them that I was with Christ long enough. Now let's shift over to something else. He just simply says, don't tell them who I am. Now I thought Jesus wanted everybody to know who he was. And this is what I'm talking about. This is one of the big surprises that I've ever experienced in my Christian life. And I'm ashamed to say that I was, well, it was just two years ago when I discovered this. I don't feel so bad because you wouldn't know if I hadn't discovered it. <laughs> You'd still be in the dark if I hadn't known. Well, if Jesus didn't go around telling people he was the Christ, and we know that he didn't, if the disciples didn't go around telling, him, telling people that he was the Christ, what in the world did they preach? And remember the results that they got were the same results Jesus had. So what message did Jesus preach and did he give to his disciples to preach that produced the miracle results that they did? Look within Luke chapter 9. Beginning in verse 1. Then called Jesus his 12 disciples together and gave them power and authority over all devils and to cure diseases. And he sent them to preach. He sent them to preach. He sent them to preach the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. He sent them to preach the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. We see an automatic connection between healing the sick and the kingdom of God. That's certainly true in Jesus' ministry, but it wasn't just true in his ministry. It was true where the disciples were concerned as well, the 12. He sent them to preach the kingdom of God and heal the sick. Luke chapter 10. 
Verse 1, after these things, the Lord appointed other 70 also and sent them two and two before his face into every city and place, whether he himself would come. Therefore said he unto them, the harvest truly is great, but the laborers are few. Pray ye therefore the Lord of the harvest that he would send forth laborers into his harvest. Go ye your ways, or go your ways. Behold, I send you forth as lambs among wolves. Carry neither purse nor scrip nor shoes, and salute no man by the way. And into whatsoever house you enter, first say, peace be unto this house. That's the first thing he tells them to say. Peace be unto this house. And if the son of peace be there, your peace shall rest upon it. If not, it shall turn unto you again. And in the same house remain. He's still not telling them what to tell people. And in the same house remain, eating and drinking such things as they give. For the laborer is worthy of his hire. Go not from house to house. And into whatsoever city you enter and they receive you, eat such things as are set before you. Verse 9, and heal the sick that are therein and say unto them. This is the first time anything's mentioned about what they speak other than saying, peace be unto this house. And in whatsoever city that you enter and they receive you, eat such things as, you set, as are set before you. And heal the sick that are therein, and say unto them, The kingdom of God is come nigh unto you. Folks, the Bible says in the mouth of two or three witnesses, let every word be established. We've got two witnesses of the people that operated in Jesus' ministry with the delegated authority that he gave them over sickness and disease and over all the power of the enemy. We, uh, if we looked over a little bit, a little further into the chapter, it tells us about verse uh, 16, 17, 18, somewhere around there, that the disciples of the 70 returned again with joy and said, Lord, even the devils are subject unto us in your name. And then Jesus said in verse 19, I beheld Satan fall as lightning from heaven. Behold, I give unto you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy. And nothing shall by any means hurt you. That's verse 19, I believe. So they found the power to heal the sick. They found the power to cast out devils, exercise authority over the evil one. They found that as a result of the preaching of the kingdom of God. Not telling people Jesus was the Messiah. Matthew 16 indicates that they might not have been sure before that point in time. So he said the miracles, the Bible tells us the miracles, the healings, and the exercise of authority over the devil in the disciples' lives and mission was from preaching or teaching or saying the kingdom of God has come near. The kingdom of God has come near. Well, then what did Jesus teach? The disciples are going to teach whatever he taught. The disciples are going to teach whatever they heard him say. That's all they know. So what did they say? Turn with me to Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7. This is the tail end of the Sermon on the Mount, which starts in chapter 5, the beginning of chapter 5. 
where Jesus is talking about character, he's talking about, well, you remember the Beatitudes, blessed are the poor, for they shall inherit from God and so forth. Jesus continues on talking about the things concerning God. But what I want to pick up with is, is verse 24 in Matthew chapter 7. Jesus says, as a result of talking about all the things that he's told him about God and about God's purpose here on the earth and so forth. He said, therefore, whosoever heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them, I will liken him unto a wise man which built his house upon the rock. And the rain descended. Let me stop there long enough and say, remember what Jesus said when we started over in Matthew 16? Jesus said, upon this rock, I'll build my church. The knowledge of who he is. Well, he's using the same example here. Whosoever heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them, I will liken him unto a wise man which built his house upon a rock. He's talking about building your house on the word. He's talking about building your life on the truth of his word. And the rain descended and the floods came and the winds blew and beat upon that house and it fell not for it was founded upon a rock. Now I would submit something to you folks as we read this. Our first thought, I think, was mine. It may be for you too. The first thought most people have is destruction. The rain, the winds, the flood. But all of those things, and, and it certainly applies. It's certainly true. It includes that. But the same words, the wind, the flood, and the rain, are all talked about in different places in the Bible as blessings of God. See, some people are destroyed because they don't hold fast in times of trouble. But other people are destroyed because they don't know how to handle blessings. So don't look at this and just think this is evil stuff. This could be the blessings of God that you still have to operate in right character with or toward. And everyone that heareth these sayings of mine, verse 26, and doeth them not, shall be likened unto a foolish man which built his house upon the sand. And the rain descended and the floods came and the winds blew, same thing, either positive or negative, either blessings or destruction. And the rain descended and the floods came and the winds blew and beat upon that house and it fell. And great was the fall of it. Verse 28, And it came to pass when Jesus had ended these things, the people were astonished at his doctrine. For he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. I'm reading from King James. If you are as well, you'll notice that the word one is in italics. That means the translators added it. If we take it out and read it, it says that, the people were astonished at Jesus' doctrine, his teachings, in other words, for he taught them as having authority and not as the scribes. You look up the words of those two words in the Greek, or the words in the Greek that are translated into those two words as having, and they literally mean how to hold. The people were astonished at his doctrine, for he taught them how to hold authority and not as the scribes. Notice they're astonished and they're amazed at his doctrine, not at him. This began to open my eyes to a lot of things. And like I said, it's, it's just been in the last two years that I've seen it in this way. I was around Brother Hagin for years and have studied for years on the authority of the believer. 
But I never realized the place in Jesus' teaching that authority held. I didn't realize to the extent where Jesus is preaching and or teaching the kingdom of God from the standpoint that this illustrates, and that is he taught man how to have authority. He taught man how to hold authority. He taught man how to use authority. But things started falling into place for me because I was reminded in Genesis 1.26 that God's sole purpose in putting man here on the earth was to give him authority. I was, uh, earlier this week, I was praying about what to teach this morning and which direction the Lord wanted me to go. And I felt a real witness in my heart about teaching on authority. And I said, Lord, I'm fine with that. I love teaching on authority. I'm learning a lot of new things about authority that I never knew before. And so I'm perfectly willing to do that. But I taught on authority. I have taught on authority a lot in the church, particularly in recent days. And just as clear as a bell, the Lord said back to me, I taught on a lot too. Well, okay. (laughs) And he did. He was always teaching on authority. He was always teaching what man could have and the place that he could have relative to the kingdom of God. He was always talking about that stuff. Turn with me over to Mark chapter 4. Mark chapter 4, Jesus tells about the the parable of the sower sowing the word. We'll start in verse 1. And he began again to teach by the seaside, and there was gathered unto him a great multitude, so that he entered into a ship and sat in the sea, and the whole multitude was by the land, by the sea on the land. And he taught them many things by parables and said unto them in his doctrine... Now, this is the same doctrine over in uh, Matthew chapter 7 that the people were astonished at. He taught unto them as part of his doctrine. Hearken, behold, there went out a sower to sow. And it came to pass as he sowed, some fell by the wayside, and the fowls of the air came and devoured it up. And some fell on stony ground where it had not much earth, and immediately it sprang up because it had no depth of earth. But when the sun was up, it was scorched, and because it had no root... The word root is literally the word moisture. They didn't continue to water it. Because it had no root, it withered away, and some fell among thorns. And the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no fruit. And the other fell on good ground and did yield fruit that sprang up and increased and brought forth some thirty and some sixty and some a hundred. And Jesus said unto them, He that has ears to hear, let him hear. Now when he's talking about ears to hear, he's not talking about ears on the side of your head. He's talking about the attention that we give to his teachings. Beth, said, Beth said, uh, has said many times, I have two great faults. One is that I don't listen to what she says. And the other is something else. <laughs> so Jesus says... He that has ears to hear, let him hear. And when he was alone, they that were about him with the twelve asked of him the parable. 
And he said unto them, please notice verse 11, he said unto them, unto you it is given to know the mystery of the kingdom of God. Unto you it is given to know the mystery of the kingdom of God. But unto them that are without, all these things are done in parables. That seeing they may see and not perceive, and hearing they may hear and not understand, lest at any time they should be converted and their sins should be forgiven them. And he said unto them, Know ye not this parable? And how then will you know all parables? Now, folks, there are a couple of things that, are, that just jump out at us here. One is, God's not looking to make it easy for people. He knows what we've learned. He knows that if somebody's not committed to pursue the things of God, committed to pursue the word of God, then whatever initial blessings they get will be wasted. God's looking for people that are willing to dig. God's looking for people that are willing to commit themselves to the word, to the knowledge of the word, to be doers of the word so that they can build their house on the rock like we just read over in Matthew 7. He's looking for people that will live for him. This is the difference between being converted and becoming a disciple. Now let's get as many people converted as we can. But let's lead them on to discipleship. Jesus did not say, the Great Commission does not say, go into all the world to get people saved. Now don't get me wrong, that's a great thing to do. And he raises up a lot of ministries that do exactly that. But Jesus said, go into all the world and make disciples of all men. What's the difference between a disciple and a convert? Their attitude toward the things of God. Specifically, their attitude toward the Word. So Jesus tells us that this is the, uh, the mystery. This unlocks the secret. This is a key to unlock the kingdom of God, which Jesus identified in the prayer that he told the disciples to pray in Matthew chapter 6. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. When the disciples preached the kingdom of God, when Jesus preached the kingdom of God, he's preaching God wants things to be here on the earth for you and in your life just like they are in heaven. Now that, when, when I started understanding some of this, it's kind of like, how could I miss this for so long? Because God's the same. God wants the same thing for you, whether you're here on the earth or whether you're in heaven. He never changes. So however things are in heaven is the way God wants them to be here on the earth. And even further are the ways that he made things to be here on the earth when he created it. This world was the kingdom of God on the earth before the fall. Well, the fall didn't change God. Nothing changes God. Since Genesis 1.26 tells us that the only purpose that, that's written, that is recorded in Scripture, any part of Scripture, is that God wanted man here on the earth so he could have authority... If that was God's original purpose, it's his present-day purpose. It'll be his future purpose. It'll be his eternal purpose. So Jesus went around telling people about the kingdom of God. He went around telling people that they, God wants things in their life here on the earth just like they are in heaven. And so when Jesus said, occupy till I come, 
What does that mean? Well, it means two things right off the bat. It means go and make disciples of people, spread the kingdom of God into other people's lives. But then secondly, it means walking the word in such a manner so that the will of God for you in heaven can be here on the earth too. And without dispute, the first thing that is connected with the teaching and preaching of the kingdom of God is healing the sick. It's what he delegated to his disciples to do. I've said this before, but it's, it stood out so much to me when I started seeing some of these things that I'll repeat myself, and that is, I've never had anybody come and ask me how things were in heaven. With all the, the questions and the concerns that we have because of the difficulties that we're having in life or the things that we're going through or whatever, Nobody has come to me and said, Pastor Mike, how are things in heaven? Now, there's only one exception to that, and that is I've had a couple of ladies whose husbands died that want to know what things are going to be like when they get to heaven. Will we live together in heaven and so forth? But otherwise, people don't have questions about heaven. Not because we've got a lot of knowledge about it, but because we know that God's there and God takes care of stuff and the devil's not present. So what does God want for us here? He wants to be here with us. He wants the devil to be a non-issue in our life. And he wants us to enjoy the blessings of God just like we were there. Folks, sickness and disease cannot be part of the will of God because there's none in heaven. If we didn't know for any other reason, we would have to know because the Bible specifically tells us there's no sickness in heaven. Nothing that can hurt, harm, or destroy. Which means God can't want anything to hurt, harm, or destroy you and me here on the earth. Yeah, but Pastor Mike, God may not have created sickness, but he sometimes uses it. Well, if that's true, then expect him to use it in heaven. That can't be true. God can't have been the creator of sickness because everything God created was good. Well, some people will say, yeah, but it's good for the things that you learn through being sick. Well, then Jesus was operating out of the will of God when he healed people. See, folks, these things don't fit until we accept what the Bible says about the truth. So Jesus starts explaining the parable because it's the key to understanding the whole of the kingdom of God. And he says even this, he says, if you don't know this parable, you'll never be able to figure out any of the others. So he starts explaining. He starts explaining, first of all, about the sower sowing the word and some falling by the wayside. Let me read this to you from Matthew chapter 13, Matthew's account. Beginning in verse 18, he says, Hear ye therefore the parable of the sower. So we know he's talking about the same thing. Verse 19, he says, When anyone heareth the word of the kingdom, the word of the kingdom. When anyone heareth the word of the kingdom. Notice he calls the word of God. The sower sows the word. He's got to be talking about the word of God. So when he says the sower sows the word, he talks about the different types of people. That's what the parable is all about. It's about different types of people giving different attention or care to the word that they hear. 
So he says, when anyone heareth the word of the kingdom and understandeth it not, and understandeth it not, then comes the wicked one and catches away that which was sown in his heart. This is which is received by seed, which is, this is he which received seed by the wayside. So he's talking about understanding being the key. Well, that's what, he, that's what the key means. That's the definition of the key. I'll give you the understanding of the kingdom of God, and you'll have authority. I'll give understanding of how the things of God work, and you'll have authority. I'll teach you. I'll show you. I'll reveal to you how the kingdom of God operates, and you'll have authority. Well, that certainly fits what we saw over in Matthew chapter 7. The people were astonished at his doctrine, not at him, but at his doctrine, because he taught them how to hold authority. He taught them how to hold authority. Go back with me to Mark chapter 4. Let me read to you some other things Jesus said about the kingdom of God. Verse 26, he said, So is the kingdom of God, as if a man should cast seed into the ground. Now, the ground he's talking about is the spirit of man. So is the kingdom of God as if a man should cast seed into the ground and should sleep and rise night and day and the seed should spring and grow up. He knows not how. For the earth bringeth forth fruit of herself, first the blade, then the ear, and after that the full corn in the ear. But when the fruit is brought forth, immediately he puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. I'm a tomato farmer. You laugh, but you ought to see my tomatoes. Now, let me tell you why I'm a tomato farmer. Because I tried to grow every, different things, and this is the only thing I was good at. <laughs> I've killed some of the be most beautiful vegetable plants you've ever seen in your life. <laughs> tomatoes have got to be the easiest thing there is to grow. But, folks, it amazes me how that you can take one little tiny tomato seed, dry it out, put it in the right soil, give it the right kind of sun and right kind of water, and it can produce a plant that'll have, in many cases, dozens of tomatoes over its life. In other cases, I've got some tomatoes, that, the, the small ones, I've got some that produce hundreds off of one seed, one tiny seed. Now, I have no idea how that works. I mean, I understand the principle. You put it in the ground, you water it, you give it sunlight, feed it, and then it grows up. But I have no idea how the one tiny little seed can turn into a plant. I've got some plants that are seven feet tall. I have no idea how that happens. And I don't have to. My plants don't start growing and then realize I don't know what I'm doing. And say, forget you, we're not producing for you. And I take care of those tomato plants and provide for them like I know what I'm doing. But there's so much about the growing process that I have no clue. I have absolutely no clue how it works. I just know it does. I know if I provide the right kind of soil, and it took me a couple of years to get the right kind of soil for them to grow. 
I know that if I put, the right, put them in the right kind of soil, plant them in the right place, so that they can get sunlight and water, I know what I'm going to get. But I can't explain it to you how it happens. Now, we don't sit around and think about this stuff. We all have a general understanding. You plant, you water, you grow, and it produces. But we don't know the specifics of it. And when it comes to farming, I don't fret if the plants don't start growing fast right away because I've seen the end result. I know they'll catch up. I planted a little early last year for the weather, and so they had a slow start, but I had a strong finish. Jesus said the kingdom of God is like that. First year I amended my soil, I thought that I'd get the best stuff that I could get, and there's, there's a place not too far from here where you can buy um, real good soil and different types of soil in bulk. Truckloads is what I mean. And so I, um, I knew the time was coming up, but I wanted to be ready. So I got the soil before I really needed it. And so I had uh, my gardener put everything out and make the planter beds ready and do all this kind of stuff that I needed to do. And it looked like the most beautiful soil you've ever seen in your life. Well, I'm getting ready. I've got another week or two or whatever for the tomato plants to be delivered to me so I can plant them. So I turned the water on. I wanted to test the water lines and make sure that the sprinklers were working right for it. And I've got drip irrigation systems and all that kind of stuff for, uh, for all the plants. I've got, um, I plant them in different places in my yard, some of them over by the side fence. But I've got a big planter box in the back where I, I put most of them. And so I put the water on the planter box in the pack where I'd put all that brand new soil and let it operate for the next couple of days. And after about four or five days, my beautiful, black, perfect soil was a weed patch. And I instantly realized my mistake. Don't water before you're ready. Because the ground didn't know that it was there to grow tomatoes. So it grew whatever it got. Which turned out to be weeds. Folks, your heart's the same way. Your heart will grow whatever it gets. It will grow whatever you plant in it. Even if you didn't mean to plant it. Turn with me over to Matthew chapter 12. Jesus is accused by the Pharisees of casting the devil out by the power of the devil. And so he identifies that a house divided against itself cannot stand. And that's certainly true of the devil, but it's certainly true of God too. If God was making people sick and healing them at the same time, or making some people sick and healing other people, then his house would be divided and it wouldn't, fall, it wouldn't stand either. That's not the way God operates. Jesus points that out. We'll start in verse 34. 
He says, O generation of vipers, how can you being evil speak good things? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The heart he's talking about is the spirit of man. The same thing that he's talking about, the same thing that he identified in the parable of the sower sowing the word as the human spirit, the type of ground. So he says, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Verse 35, a good man out of the good treasure, the word treasure is the word deposit. A good man out of the good deposit of his heart, his spirit, brings forth good things. And an evil man out of the evil treasure or deposit of his heart, his spirit, brings forth evil things. But I say unto you that every idle word that man shall speak, they shall give account thereof in the day of judgment. For by thy words thou shalt be justified, and by thy words thou shalt be condemned. Remember Jesus said that the wise man was the one that built his house upon the rock. That means to build your house upon the word. That means to live your life according to the word. That means to operate kingdom of God principles by speaking into your own heart to make a deposit or to plant the truth. Another place Jesus said when the Pharisees tried to bring an accusation against him in another instance, they came to him, the Pharisees came to Jesus and said, why do your disciples not wash their hands before they eat? Now, folks, you've got to realize religion is involved in some high-level intellectual stuff, like hand-washing. But that was the question. Why do your disciples transgress the commandment by eating without washing their hands? Now, the Pharisees had this elaborate kind of surgeon type of procedure to wash hands and do everything else. And the, the, the more you scrubbed your hands <clears throat> in their thinking, the better off you are with God. Of course, that's not true. <clears throat> Excuse me, and Jesus pointed that out. Jesus reminded him of some things that had happened before when people had transgressed their uh, customs. Like he talks about one time when David came through and ate the showbread on the table for he and his, his men, his mighty army. And Jesus points out God wasn't upset with that. The bread's just a symbol. It's not some holy thing, even though it was commanded for only the, the priest to eat. It's not some holy thing in and of itself. And then he made this statement. He said, it's not the things that go into a man's mouth that defiles him. But it's the things that come out of a man's mouth. That's what defiles him. Now the word defile could for all purposes mean defeat. He's talking about holiness as compared to defilement. But he's also talking about anything and everything relative to the kingdom of God because of who Jesus has been made unto us. So when he says the things that defile a man are the things that come out of his mouth, well, the things that come out of our mouths are words. So he's telling us it's the words that defeat us. It's wrong words spoken from our hearts that defeat us. Not about the things that go in. Here he says, 
A good man out of the good treasure of his heart bringeth forth good things. What good things would those be if not things of the kingdom of God? God is good. He's only good and he's always good. Jesus went around doing good and healing all that were oppressed of the devil for God was with him. So when it's talking about bringing forth good things, it would certainly include, wouldn't be limited to, but it would certainly include any and every blessing of God that's been made, been made available to us by the sacrifice of Jesus. So a good man out of the good treasure, the deposit of the word of God in his heart brings forth or creates or produces good things. But if you haven't put the word in your heart, then the only things that are going to come out of your mouth are things that will bring you defeat. A wise man builds his house on the rock. A wise man builds his house on the truth of the word. Because your spirit will grow, it will produce whatever you speak into it. Positive or negative. Tomatoes or weeds. Turn with me over to John chapter 15, please. Notice verse 7, John 15, 7. He said, if you abide in me and my words abide in you. His words abiding in you is the good treasure or good deposit of a good man. That we just read over in Matthew chapter 12. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, it's conditional. You shall ask what you will and it shall be done unto you. Now the word ask, we've talked about this many times. I want you to know this backwards and forwards. I want you to know it so you never forget it. The word ask does not mean pray. There's a different word that's used when it's talking about praying to the Father. This word ask means to call for or require or make a demand on. Now, anytime you use that kind of terminology, some people have an opportunity at least to get offended. So you have to describe or define what you mean. What I mean, what this word means about calling for or requiring or making a demand on is best illustrated by our checking account at the bank. The checks that we used to get, I haven't seen any of these in a long time. I don't know if they make them anymore. But the checks used to say, we used to have printed on them, pay to the order of or pay to the demand of. And then you write in there whoever you're writing the check to. Well, what happens with that check? That check is presented to the bank as a demand or a calling for or a requirement to pay from monies that you've deposited ahead of time in the bank. So when you write a check, you're making a demand on the legal contract that you have with the bank when you opened your account. That's not a matter of arrogance. You don't have to be mad when you write a check. You don't have to have wrong attitude when you write a check. There are opportunities to have wrong attitudes when you write certain checks. <clears throat> but it has nothing to do with attitude. It has nothing to do with feeling. It's a legal contract. I've got money in the bank. I'm making a demand on that money by writing the check to whoever I owe the money to. The bank accepts my check as a, as a proper demand and pays out the money to the person that deposits it or cashes the check. That's what this means. 
He said, if you abide in me and my word abides in you, you can make a demand on the kingdom of God. Back to what Jesus said again in Mark. In, oh, what's that guy's name? Matthew chapter 16. And I'll give you the keys of the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. And whatsoever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatsoever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Whatever demands you put, whatever prohibition you make in your life to stop the working of the enemy, heaven will back you up. Whatever you allow or loose of the things of God, of what Jesus provided for us through his death, burial, and resurrection, heaven will back you up. Your spirit will produce whatever you require of it. And it never fails. It never fails. God created your spirit. He created you a spirit being in his image. That's why Jesus said all things are possible to him that believes. Your spirit will, can and will produce whatever you make a demand on through the deposit of the word of God in your heart. It works every time. Jesus said, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, you shall ask what you will. Now, this is the guy that taught authority everywhere he went. This is the guy that with these very same disciples, those disciples heard him teach authority everywhere he went. It's amazing to me that the disciples did not come back to Jesus after their first healing experience and say, wow, Jesus, this worked. They didn't know anything else. There was a time when he, they came to him and said, why couldn't we do it? With the guy that had the epileptic son. Jesus said, this kind comes not, not forth but by prayer and fasting. Well, prayer and fasting doesn't change God. Prayer and fasting doesn't change the power of the devil. Prayer and fasting makes us more sensitive to the things of God, to the spirit of God, than we were before. So the prayer and fasting just would change them. Well, how would it change them? Well, one thing that we can see in the difference in Mark chapter 9, where Jesus is dealing with this child, is that the disciples didn't know what the cause was. Jesus did. Jesus didn't have to go pray and fast. How come? Because he was already walking in union with God. He was already sensitive to the Holy Ghost. He already knew what the answer was. But the implication is that the disciples, if they had been in the same place of spiritual sensitivity through prayer and fasting, Jesus said, then they could have done the same work that Jesus did and delivered the boy. But the fact that they asked why they weren't able to do it indicates that they're used to success. They're not used to doing this thing and it not working. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you shall ask, call for, require, demand. You shall ask what you will. Some people get bent out of shape about that. Oh, you're talking about asking out of the will of God. Well, if the word abides in you, if you're abiding in him and his word abides in you, you're not going to be praying something or asking for something or calling for or requiring something out of his will. The only reason you'd put the word in your heart is if you want the will of God to come to pass. Isn't that right? So if you abide in me and my words abide in you, you shall ask what you will, and it shall be done for you of my Father which is in heaven. Notice verse 8. Herein, in this manner, by getting results, 
by the exercise of your authority, bringing forth results. Herein is my Father glorified, that you bear much fruit, so shall you be my disciples. Notice the fruit he's talking about. He's talking about bringing forth fruit by calling for or requiring or placing a demand on the things of the kingdom of God that belongs to us because of what Jesus has done. He said God is glorified by that. In simplest terms, we could say your exercise of authority glorifies God. Your exercise of authority glorifies God. You saying what will be and what will not be in your life brings God glory. Now, some people think that's not the way it should be. Oh, we should bring God glory by putting up with whatever tragedy is taking place in our lives. Yeah, that makes God happy to see his children run over by his enemy. How foolish can we be? But if on the other hand, the Bible was really true, if the Bible was really true, and Genesis 1.26 really told us God's plan for man, let us make man in our own image and after our own likeness and let them have dominion on the earth. If that was really true, that would fit exactly with this scripture in John 15, 7 and 8. God would be glorified when you exercise authority in the earth because that's what he put man here on the earth to do. Can't be both ways. Which way is it? I'm going to stick with what the Bible says even if I don't have all the answers on it. Because one thing I know from what Jesus said is that the whole kingdom of God is like speaking words, God's word, into your own spirit, making a deposit, establishing a treasure of God's word in your own heart so that those words can come out of my mouth so that the will of God can be affected in our lives. Now that's what the Bible says. But don't worry, there are plenty of theologians that are available to talk you out of that truth. And honest to goodness, folks, now more than ever, having seen some of the things that I've seen over the last couple of years, now more than ever, it seems to me that it takes professional help to misunderstand the Bible. And there's plenty of it out there. If you abide in me and my word abides in you, you shall call for, require, or make a demand on what you will. And it shall be done for you by my Father in heaven. Your spirit will produce it. Your spirit will produce it. Herein is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit. One last point I want to make on this, especially when I just said your spirit will produce it in reference to chapter John 15, 7. Whatever you call for or require or demand in my name, my Father will do it. There is a, a work of the devil. I'm sorry, it doesn't say my Father will do it. It says it shall be done unto you. There's a work of the devil in our minds and against our minds that want us to think that God is controlling time on concerning the things that you're believing for. That can't be true. 
So often, and here's the danger of it, so often we look to the idea or the principle of God bringing things to pass as if time was under his control. If that's true, if you follow it out to his logical end, if that's true, then there would have to be a reason why God was not doing things now. But that he will do things in the future. And that's not how it works. The Bible says that it's God's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Jesus is talking, about, uh, talking to his disciples about believing God to take care of their needs. Matthew's account says, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. Luke's account says a little different, brings out a little different meaning. It leaves out the righteousness part. Seek first the kingdom of God and all these things will be added to you. But then Luke goes on further and adds some description. He says, for it's the Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Well, at that time, when Luke was recording the things that Jesus said, at that time, when Jesus is speaking to his disciples, the kingdom of God had not come. But it has now. Colossians 1.13 says, we've been translated delivered from the power of darkness and translated into the kingdom of God's dear son. Well, if that's not the kingdom of God, what is? So he has given us already the good, through his good pleasure, the kingdom of God. God's not controlling the time. And if you start looking at it like he is controlling the time, then you become, instead of walking in union with him, he becomes your adversary. And the devil wants that to be your thought. Well, then why do some things take longer than others? Because some trees grow quicker than other trees. Some results come quicker than others. Sometimes we control that through our actions or lack of actions of faith. But most of the time it's just a matter of your faith giving substance to your, what you're believing for. God can't be working the clock when it comes to what you believe for. He cannot be. Because that would make him unjust. If he healed you quicker than he healed me. Then he would be a respecter of persons. So you got to have to be ready. When the devil comes and says well tell me why God's taking so long. It's not a matter of God taking long. Brother Hagin used to say it this way. And this is the, the best thing that I've found as far as an answer when, the, when he was believing for things and the enemy came against him asked him or accused him or whatever why things hadn't worked out already he would always answer the same way he would simply say my faith is giving substance to my healing my faith is giving substance to my healing see that puts you back on God's side that puts you back on the side of agreement with the word which says that if you speak the word into your own heart, your heart, your spirit, the recreated, born-again human spirit will produce even the miraculous. And you've got to stay on God's side of things when you're believing him. He can't become your adversary because then you've stepped over in unbelief. So whatever it is you're believing for, if it's delayed and the devil tries to attack you because of the delay, and that's always the, the issue, folks. The devil always wants to get you looking at time. 
A better thing is to look at truth. And the truth is, according to the word of God, the truth is, your faith is giving substance to whatever you're believing for. Your faith is giving substance to whatever promise of God, whatever blessing of God you're believing to have. Amen? If you abide in me, think of the unlimited potential of that verse. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you shall ask, call for, require, demand what you will and it shall. Not might, not the odds are in your favor. It shall be done unto you. You have authority in your life. You decide what is and what isn't, what will be and what won't be, and only you. God's not looking for us to glorify him through sickness or disease or poverty or lack or whatever. He's looking for us to glorify him through the exercise of authority that Jesus restored to us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for the truth that you've delivered unto us. Lord, we thank you that we do have authority here on the earth. We have been given the keys of the kingdom. We've been given the, uh, we've been given the keys of authority in this earth. We thank you for the privilege to read and to study your word to deposit it within our own spirits that it might bring forth the will of God in our lives in earth just as it is in heaven. Show us how we can apply this, Lord, in its most effective way in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen. Let's all stand. Hallelujah. Say this after me. I have authority in the name of Jesus. By the word of God, I decide what will be in my life. I decide where the devil stops in my life. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Have a great day. Come on back and be with us tonight for Healing School if you can.